Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia. Because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tipping no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Hi there, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute with the very first 2021 edition of Democracy Sausage. Now, for those of you listening to our final somewhat irreverent 2020 awards episode, you remember that I farewelled the brilliant EP Martin Pierce who has since left the ANU for other employment in the science and technology area. So that is a loss. In fact, I'm inclined to award him an honorary BA, not so much a Bachelor of Arts, but a Benedict Arnold Award for defection. But no, look, in truth, Martin is a great loss and remains a great friend. And who knows, we might just lure him back at some stage. Anyway, I'm delighted that his equally talented former understudy, Angus Blackman, has stepped up. So welcome to you, Angus. Um, the other thing I was slightly remiss in not making more of in the last episode of last year was the impending absence of my brilliant friend and colleague, Dr. Maria Teflaga. Maria is now away on maternity leave, and well, I'm not sure how I'm going to get along without her, frankly. We'll just have to see how we go. Now, we wouldn't be living up to our brief if we didn't start off the year with what we all hope will remain the biggest story of 2021. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case, of course. One has a feeling the story of vaccines and and the pandemic may uh, continue to make headlines for all the wrong reasons. Let's hope not. But nonetheless, the year did begin with the installation of a new and some would say proper president in the White House after the most divisive, destructive and abusive presidency really in that country's history. And I can't think of a better thinker to do that with, to talk about these issues with, than the brilliant Stan Grant, the ABC's international affairs analyst, author of countless articles and multiple books, including one that's actually shortly to come out and one recently called Australia Day, which of course was only a couple of days ago, and we might touch on that a bit later as well. So let's just kick off the discussion now with uh, with a discussion about the, the US. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage, Stan Grant. Lovely to be here. Happy New Year to you and everyone listening in. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I noticed that you've been everywhere right through this period covering the inauguration <laughs> and, of course, the uh, explosive events that occurred before that. Um, here's a sort of a general yeah. opening question. For all of the trauma, all of the convulsions of the system, has it finally kind of worked? Did it finally get to where it needed to get to? I think it, you know, it depends on how we define working, Mark. I mean, if it means that that the system has held in that there is a new president in place now, uh, and that you know there was an inauguration, he is he is uh, you know bringing his new administration into being. Um, that the police ultimately pushed back those those people who stormed the Capitol building in that in that Donald Trump-inspired insurrection. If you look at that as working, then I think there's an argument that, yes, the system is held. Here's the other question. Is the system the problem? And I think that is, that is a much more interesting thing 
for me. Uh, I think there's a rush right now to sort of calm things down, take a breath and go back to business as usual. I think business as usual was the problem. America has been unravelling at least for the past 40 years with this increasing polarisation, a growing populism feeding into um, inequalities in the country, festering, lingering racial resentment. I think to go back to normal, to hit snooze right now would be the worst thing. I'm not sure that we're seeing any indication yet from the incoming Biden administration that they actually want to tackle the deep-seated problems. Um, the administration is being staffed by leftovers uh, from the, the, the Obama administration. Um, you know, these, these deep-seated problems in America preceded Trump. Trump exploited them. Um, Trump worsened them. Uh, but they were there before him. And, and so if the system, the system may hold, but the system itself Maybe part of the problem. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. The system is, in a sense, kind of reasserting its uh, primacy at the moment uh, after after four years of of it essentially being chucked out, thrown away, uh, devalued. Um, uh, Americans were told that the old rules had been working against them, and and that that was kind of you know deconstructed. That was the the Trump message. They were taking back America for Americans from you know from the elites and from entrenched interests. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's an interesting point you make about the comparison because uh, what you just said about the, the, the new administration being staffed by leftovers from, say, the Obama administration, that, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that experience matters. We had four years of, of, of dilettantes and sycophants of some really kooky people uh, and, of course, the revolving door of um, – of staff, uh, of uh, cabinet positions and and uh, officials in the Trump administration, people who one way or another fell foul of of the president and had to go. Uh, we had of course had of course you know significant numbers of his family in the administration. Everything about it was uh, you know seemed to be an assault on 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 the kinds of um, uh, uh, I suppose rules for for propriety and transparency and accountability that uh, the system is at least meant to provide. And so, isn't it possible to say that we have now being placed in a number of these key positions? You think of someone like Anthony Blinken or, um, or uh, Jake Sullivan, you know, the the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor, uh, respectively, Janet Yellen in the Treasury Post. Uh, these kinds of people are people who know what they're doing. Experience does matter. These are important things they're doing. It's not really just about you know blowing whistles and and um, and throwing people out. Experience does matter, but the risk is that they repeat their experience. Um, if you look at foreign policy, for instance, and let's just take the Obama administration as an example. Um, when you get to the end of the Obama years, for all of the you know, remember it began with. We wanted to reset. We wanted to reset with Russia. Remember, Barack Obama said he would sit down without preconditions with any of the leaders of the world. He offered that olive branch Mm. to the Muslim world, um, uh, tried to restart talks with North Korea, tried to reset the relationship with Russia. When you get to the end of the Obama administration, you've got Islamic State with a flag in the ground establishing a new caliphate, um, a a militant terrorist organisation that Barack Obama himself blithely dismissed as a junior varsity terrorist organisation. Well, he got that wrong. Um, You have the Syrian civil war where Obama was criticised for his lack of decisive intervention, particularly when the red lines of of gassing your own people were crossed by Bashar al-Assad and Obama did not enforce that red line. It opened the door, of course, for uh, Vladimir Putin to exert greater influence and to insert Russia even more strongly into the region. And by the end of the Obama administration, Russia had certainly was certainly projecting its power in a way that probably it hadn't um, since the end of, of the Cold War. Uh, you have Libya, of course, after the intervention there in an absolute mess, ungovernable. Um, you have a, a massive movement of refugees across the world, which had sparked a blowback across Europe that saw borders going back up again and a rise of right-wing populism. Uh, You saw China militarising and claiming the South China Sea, North Korea, um, which had had, uh, increased its nuclear arsenal during that that time and become a fully-fledged nuclear-armed state. And, of course, Russia had annexed Crimea. I'm not a great fan of the Obama foreign policy 
legacy. Yes, he got Osama bin Laden, but we also got ISIS. Um, so, so there are problems if we're going to repeat the, the experience of the Obama years, and yet we have people in those significant positions who are a product of those years. If you look at the economy, I mean, Barack Obama had an opportunity after the global financial crisis to really reset the, the economic trajectory of America and particularly deal with the deep-seated issues of inequality. Um, what did we get instead? We saw a defence and a support of Wall Street. Barack Obama said specifically to the Wall Street bankers who, who had exploited the system to lead to that financial collapse, I've got your back. In his words, I am what's standing between you and the pitchforks. Well, as we know, the bankers didn't go to jail. The bankers didn't lose their job. Within a few years, they were back collecting their bonuses again. And ordinary people had lost their homes, seen their factories closed down. And that, of course, led to this, this seething anger and resentment and people stupidly turning to a, a, a you know a false saviour in Donald Trump. Um, there, the experience does matter, but the ability mm. to learn from your experience is what is important here. I think also... There's a real worry for me in the establishment of what is a very clear meritocracy in America, um, which where, where power and privilege is passed between the hands of a few, in fact, just a few families. Now, let's go back to Ronald Reagan's presidency. When Ronald Reagan's presidency ended, he handed off to his vice president, George H.W. Bush. That then led to the Clinton administration. And then what do we see? George H.W. Bush's son, George W. Bush. That then leads to the Obama administration where Bill Clinton's wife, Hillary, is Secretary of State. And who runs in the 2016 election? Hillary Clinton. Who is president now? Barack Obama's former vice president. With peopled and staffed with the same people who've been to the same Ivy League mm. universities and colleges and Wall Street jobs. And, you know, it starts to look like to ordinary Americans like a scam, like a racket. In the meantime, inequality has grown, and the last three years of the Obama administration, life expectancy in the United States actually decreased. This is pre-COVID, decreased for the first time in a hundred years. I mean, the the legacy is not great. The exploitation of power and privilege in the hands of a few um, is is feeding into the damage of America. To talk about unity, to try to reset to experience, um, may be the worst thing America can do. What they need to do is to take that experience of running a country and come up with new ideas. Think again about redistributing wealth. Think again about breaking up that nexus of politics and Wall Street and big business. Think again about how to restore the, or the faith of ordinary Americans in what is a very tattered American dream. And think again about America's place in the world and the extent to which it can express its reach, to the extent to which it can lead the world, a country that itself has been damaged so badly by COVID, by financial crisis, terrorism, and ongoing war for the past 20 years. I think this moment requires a lot more, and I'm not seeing or hearing that at the moment. Well, it is early days. You make some very persuasive points there, and particularly the uh, the compelling uh, point about that that kind of baton handing exercise of power over uh, several decades, a whole series of presidencies. I remember noting, I've probably noted it on this podcast before, but um, you know, back when Hillary Clinton was running uh, against Obama in those uh, those primaries of twenty oh seven. Um, if if Clinton, who I think started out as the favourite over Obama in those primaries, if she had won and and got two terms, which most American yeah. presidents do, uh, you would have it would have been a, a series of uh, Bushes and Clintons as president My for God. something like an unbroken twenty eight years. I mean, yeah. nearly three decades. Uh, it's, it's not how and, it's and as you work. say, in, in some ways it's been brought about anyway by by functionaries, uh, people closely associated with with those two machines that have one way or another ensured that some level of um, of continuity there. Yeah, and, and it's not how it's meant to work, Mark, is it? I mean, you know, this is why there is this erosion of faith in government and institutions and it opens the door 
for these demagogues and populists who are able to exploit those those concerns, those anxieties, those fears. And it doesn't help as well when, of course, those people who've seen their factories closed down, who've lost their jobs, who who feel as if they've been left behind in America, um, are referred to as Hillary Clinton did as deplorables or as Barack Obama once did, sort of mocking them for clinging to their God and their guns. Um, it, it, I think this moment in America demands a lot more. Um, it's one thing to talk about unity, to talk about trying to bring back decency to America. There is an argument that America has never been a country of unity. Um, it's always been an imperfect union. It's a country deeply divided. It's a country that's born in the genocide of first first people, um, the Native Americans, um, the enslavement of black Americans. Um, even after the, the Civil War, of course, and the liberation of African-Americans from slavery, you then get Jim Crow laws. It's a country mm-hmm. that assassinated its presidents. Um, it's a country constantly um, in a battle with itself, um, as, as Lincoln sort of identified, that fight between the, the better angels of their nature and the, the darker realities of, of the country. And I think that's what confronts Joe Biden now and a reset or a pause button or an appeal to unity um, and decency is not going to be enough, even though I understand that the rhetoric is is important, um, trying to give people some sense of a light out of the gloom is important. Now we wait to see what he actually does. Do you think that's Biden's core challenge uh, to show that third of American voters or third of Americans really, probably greater, uh, that still supported Trump to, to show them that they still count in America that he represents them he made a he made a point in his inauguration uh, speech of uh, saying that he is a president for all Americans it's a fairly standard line yeah. we hear victors make but uh, one imagines that that Biden at least who I think can be marked out for his fundamental decency. Uh, he's been around a long time and it's hard to find anyone who criticises him on character grounds at least. Um, and is that is that his core challenge to somehow balance convincing that large wedge of America that was so disenchanted with the system that it was prepared to vote for a wrecker um, whilst at the same time staying true to a Democratic Party which, and this goes as an interesting counterpoint to to some of the points you raised before as well, which outwardly looks to have shifted to the left really since uh, the Obama period. Yeah, um, of course, it didn't shift as far to the left as some in the Democrats, the true believers may have wanted, you know, the, the Sanders left or um, the AOC left, <laughs> um, you know, people who wanted a fundamental shift uh, in the country. Um, it looks like, I mean, if you look at someone like... Um, like, like Kamala Harris, of course, now Vice President, as much as she represents a shattering of the, the glass ceilings of gender and, and race, she is firmly establishment. Um, she is firmly sort of of the, the small L left of, of, um, of the Democrat Party. Uh, she, while she was um, California Attorney General, was criticised for the number of black people that she put behind bars. Um, so, so you know, the, it's probably not reflective of, of the shift that many of the people who voted for Biden, um, because there was no other choice, would actually want. It's going to be a real challenge for Biden to make good on the faith of people who want him to, uh, to reach a lot further uh, and the realities of governing a country where you also have to appeal to the people on the right, those people who have who have uh, who have voted for Donald Trump, and as you say, you know, more than seventy million, seventy four million. It's the highest number of votes any sitting president in American history has ever achieved. Um, and of course, here's the other irony, and this is an indication, I think, Mark, of the way that politics itself has shifted, and we've seen this in Australia, as you would know better than me. Um, the 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 former parties, the parties former parties of the working class are now the parties of the middle-class progressive set. So a lot of the people who are voting for Donald Trump, people who are the working class, people who've seen their factories closed, as I've said before, they've seen their, they've lost their homes in the financial crisis, they've sent their children off to fight these endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan while they've seen, you know, Washington cosy up to the elite, that sort of anger, those people would have been at one time Democrat voters, how does he 
how does he win back that working class base um, and also uh, then make make good on the faith of the sort of more progressive class that have that have put him into the White House. So it's a it's a real balancing act for him. It may well be beyond him. Of course, remember Lincoln, possibly the greatest president they've ever had. You know, he leads the country through the Civil War. He stands there in his second inaugural, and he makes that that appeal to finish the work we are in to bind up our wounds. And a month later, he's dead. Andrew Johnson, his successor, his vice president, then institutes Jim Crow laws and cozies up to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, you know that that it, it is it is a it is a it is a test that. Greater presidents than Biden, I might suggest, have failed, and that is to be able to to bring the country together in that sense of of unity. Um, I think also there's something else happening here, Mark, and I and I think this feeds into this moment, and it 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 it, it stretches beyond the borders of the United States, and that is a reckoning in the West, a deep reckoning in the West about Western hegemony. I think we've we've come to believe in the past three hundred plus years um, that that the iron rules of the West, the faith, the shibboleths of of liberalism and democracy and pluralism, are as immutable as the laws of gravity, and we're finding out that they're not. For the first time in three hundred years, very soon within this decade, the biggest economic power in the world will not be a Western country. In fact, in China, a country that, while it's taken aspects of market capitalism, rigidly rejects political liberalism and has a deep antipathy to the West because of the hundred years of humiliation that Xi Jinping and, and others constantly talk about. Um, you can go back to the 9-11 attacks and you can start to see a lot of these fault lines coming into place, you know, that tipping the world into the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, the financial crises, um, the blowback of Islamist terrorism. I think there's a, I think there's a moment here of real inflection, I think, a, a moment of deep introspection, if not, if not even existential crisis in the West. And I think COVID has probably accelerated that as well because those countries that have been worst hit it's been a, a, an indication of the failure of those countries to properly govern and the institutions to work and the mechanisms to work and the deep inequalities and the failure of healthcare, um, the political and cultural polarisation have all played into that as well. So I think Biden arrives at a moment where America itself is going through an existential crisis and the West more broadly that America has led, particularly obviously since the end of World War II, um, and especially since the end of the Cold War, it the West itself is going through a period of crisis. This is a this is a real historical hinge point for all of us, I think. Yes, and a very a very worrying one, as you say. A lot of assumptions that have been uh, you know that are just sort of baked in as if they were they were permanent truths uh, have suddenly been thrown up in the air, and uh, who knows where that's going to lead. Let's take a quick break and come back and continue this discussion. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, just before the break, we were talking about some very big questions uh, to, do, to do with the West and uh, whether it's at this inflection point. A lot of things that uh, we took for granted that perhaps we ought not have over a long period of time. We'll come back to some of those big issues in a moment. I just want to go to a couple of, I guess, what, what we might say are sort of st strategic or tactical political 
positions related to the US election. Just get your thoughts on these, Stan. Um, the Georgia result was really quite mm. remarkable because it was pivotal in the future prospects of this Biden administration and giving it, at least if all of its Democrat votes hold, a control of the Senate with the casting vote of Kamala Harris. Harris. Uh, that's significant. But it was significant that Georgia did that too, that Georgia flipped for the Democrats in the wake of uh, the, you know, the Trump administration. How, how significant was that, do you think? I mean, because it kind of vindicated, I thought, uh, and I haven't really seen this written much, but it seemed to sort of vindicate in a very considered way the logic of Biden as the uh, as the counterweight to or counter you know, the contrast to Donald Trump. Even after reflection, uh, a Republican state installed two Democrat senators uh, uh, after the election. I think you are absolutely. I think that's really insightful, Mark. I think you you've seized on something there that is is really really interesting. Georgia, consider this, of course, that, you know, this was something that, that the Republicans probably would have thought they had in the bank. Um, to see Georgia shift, it's interesting as well. This follows from 2016, of course, and Stacey Abrams' um, strong performance there. Uh, we, we know that how she um, has been able to sort of marshal a lot of the black vote and, and hmm. build that strong base. Donald Trump also put a lot of his personal prestige on the line. Remember, in that in that in that vote for the um, the Senate, he went down there. He actually went down there and campaigned. If if there was if there was some if there was momentum still left in in Trumpism, he was looking to you know this was a real test of it. And the fact that they flipped, the fact that you also saw a black candidate um, being elected in Georgia, I think really does indicate something that we can, if we can extrapolate from that, that may be a moment. It maybe says that there is something here for Joe Biden in knitting together a bigger coalition that cuts across race and class and geography, that he can appeal um, and that the Democrats can appeal to parts of the country that they haven't appealed to for quite some time. So, I, th I think Georgia is really, really interesting as a litmus test, as, as an indicator of where the country may go, as an opportunity for Biden to build a bigger coalition, and also as an indication of whether Trump and Trumpism has legs, whether it will burn itself out, whether there is exhaustion, whether the 74 million who voted for Trump um, will hold, whether people will, will just take a step back now and reassess. So I think Georgia, I think that's a really interesting observation that you've, you've raised. That question of Georgia speaks way beyond the borders of Georgia itself. I was tempted to uh, quip that the devil went down to Georgia when uh, you made the point about Trump going there. Uh, it, either way, as you say, it didn't, it didn't quite work and it was really quite historic. We'll see how that plays out. It raises uh, interesting, it pl plays into the significance of, uh, of uh, subsequent ramifications, I suppose. We've, we've got the question about the Senate trial for this, um, to, to whether the Senate actually convicts Donald Trump in relation to the insurrection. insurrection. What's your view? Should the Senate, should the Democrats persist with this? There's a, a strong narrative running that uh, if Biden's about healing, he should just let it, should just let it rest. Uh, there are other arguments, Nancy Pelosi among them, putting the point, and I think it's a persuasive one, that to not take it further is essentially to say that uh, the that a future presidential candidate can simply ignore the election result can 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 pull all kinds of levers and and incite rebellion uh, if if he or she doesn't like the result that uh, no self-respecting republic can allow that to go unchallenged what's your view well it could also of course leave the door open for Donald Trump to run again if he's convicted in the senate um, that will lead or I assume, to a second vote, and it will require a second vote to then disqualify him from seeking the presidency again, um, which would mean that he wouldn't be able to run in 2024, which I think is probably still in the back of Donald Trump's mind. So there is a, there is a, a, a you know, there is some real skin in the game here in terms of Trump and, and his brand and how long that lasts. And there's also the question here, um, Mark, about the fact that the president, the sitting president at the time of the United States, called on people to march on the Capitol um, 
as you say, with on the back of lies about a stolen election and inciting that insurrection and that needs to be called to account. Um, will they convict? Well, we have to look to the Republicans. We know what it requires. I think about 17 of the Republicans are going to have to shift to get the two-thirds of the Senate that's required for the conviction. Um, all eyes on Mitch McConnell, which way he will go, how does he want to position himself, whether the Republicans think that they can repudiate Trump without losing the Trump supporters and the damage that Trump could do to them. I mean, Trump has hijacked the Republican Party. It became the party of Trump. Even people who had opposed him in the primaries, you know, the likes of Cruz or Rubio, came to the Trump narrative, came to the Trump side. Um, Even after the insurrection, most of the Republicans were prepared, overwhelmingly prepared, to vote against impeachment in the House. So there are deep questions here for the Republicans themselves. Now, what will it do in terms of Biden's attempt to unify the country? Well, of course, um, you know, a, 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 the spectacle of a, a trial in the Senate um, with the possibility of protests in the streets and igniting all of that again, that is that is a real possibility. But I don't think it's something that could have been ignored. And to go back to my earlier point, I don't know that unity should be the aim of, of the Biden administration. It is the aim of it is to govern over that unity, to get things done and to go to the to the source, if you like, to go to the to cut out the the, 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 the roots of that cancer, which means really seriously tackling with the socioeconomic ills and racial ills of that of that country. But you know this this uh, trial is going to tell us again a lot about the country, but it's going to tell us a lot about the Republicans and how they're going to position themselves, what leadership will emerge from the Republicans, um, and whether they can repudiate Trump or whether they remain hostage. To Trump. It's going to be fascinating to watch this play out. One wonders what uh, Ted Cruz really thinks because, as you say, he's been on an interesting journey himself. He looks to be positioning himself for 2024. Perhaps he's hoping to uh, get the uh, the conviction of Donald Trump without voting for it because, as you say, they all need to be very careful about how they look to the Trump base in the Republican Party, which you know basically is most of it at the moment. Uh, so fascinating uh, situation. Some of those competitors might want Trump out of the way, but still uh, still want favour with that uh, that enormous Trump base. Now, Stan, I mentioned uh, at the top of the uh, program that you've um, been the author of several books. One called Australia Day, which we've spoken about before, and I'd, I'd like to come back to that in a moment and 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 discuss. Yeah. Uh, that because we're just a couple of days on the uh, other side of Australia Day now. We've seen a pretty spirited debate. But just before we do that, just for the sake of continuity and keeping things global, you also have another book just about to come out. Tell us about that, just the, the, the uh, what, what this new book is going to be about. It's a few months away, I think, just about to go to the printers. Yeah, no, it's a good opportunity to talk about it. I've just put the finishing touches to it. The edit's all done. It's heading off to the printers now. It's, it's called With the Falling of the Dusk, and it's going to be released in... April through HarperCollins. With the falling of the dusk was uh, a line taken from the philosopher Hegel, um, who I think emerges as probably the most dominant um, philosophical presence of the 20th century and going into the 21st century. You know, Hegel, of course, was the philosopher who believed in the end of history at Francis Fukuyama appropriated for his his uh, work at the end of the Cold War that he saw the the, the, the triumph of liberal democracy is the crowning moment of civilization and the ideological struggles of humanity are over and we've reached the end of history. Um, Hegel was writing this after the French Revolution and during the reign of Napoleon, and he believed that Napoleon represented the end of history. Well, Stalin believed, taking a line from Hegel and Marx, who was influenced by Hegel, um, that, that the communist, the Soviet Russia, was the end of history. Mao believed that China was the end of history. Xi Jinping still believes that. Um, so I'm really sort of looking at that idea. And Hegel said, um, you know, with that the, the owl of Minerva, the owl of wisdom, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings with the falling of the dusk. Well, are we at the falling of the dusk now? After the, the end of history of 1989, where are we? Because we didn't see the end of history. We saw the return of history in the same year that the that the uh, that the, the the Berlin Wall came down. We also saw the massacre in Tiananmen Square. 
While the Soviet Union was collapsing in 1991, Deng Xiaoping was completely changing the trajectory um, of China, opening up to the world but doubling down on Communist Party rule at home. China now, as I've said before, on the cusp of becoming the biggest economic power in the world but resolutely illiberal politically. Um, the rise of Islamist terrorism, which was a blowback against against the legacy of the West and Western intervention um, in the Muslim world. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to look at all of those, of that fault line between the West and this moment, as I've said, of, of deep, I think, inflection, if not crisis for the West, as it goes through this introspection about what the West is and what it stands for and what Western leadership is versus a rise of the rest. Um, I go back to 1979 as a sort of starting point because I was just coming into the final year of school. The world was beginning to change, was taking shape. A lot of what we see today, the seeds were planted then, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan at the tail end of 1979, which ultimately led to the rise of the Taliban and then al-Qaeda and the attacks on on the World Trade Centers in 9-11, then the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, The Iranian revolution, you know, the overthrow of a Western-backed dictator in the Shah, which, which really sort of... Um, energised the Islamist movement around the world, both Sunni and Shia. We saw Deng Xiaoping in 79 become the supreme leader of China and, and, uh, and again, open up that country to where we, we see China today. Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister of Britain. Soon after that, Ronald Reagan becomes President of the US and we see that alliance and the, and the, the rise uh, and the reign of neoliberalism. And Gorbachev enters... The Politburo, um, the youngest member I think ever to have entered the Politburo at that point, I think a lot of the world was taking shape then as I was sort of entering into my adulthood. I was fortunate enough as a reporter over a 30-year period to cover so much of this. So I'm blending that personal experience of being out there and, you know, I know what it's like to sit down and and have lunch with a Taliban fighter. I know what it's like to catch a train across North Korea and and look into the eyes of North Koreans. I've travelled the length and breadth of China. I've covered the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, I've seen the rise of populism. I've covered the United States. Um, you know, these to to be able to blend that with a with a bigger, I think, philosophical and political take on what has brought us to this moment and all the things I talked about before, COVID, populism, the retreat or the the damage that done to America and the um, retreat of American power and the rise of China. So big themes pulled together but hopefully readable and accessible for people to want to know what, what brought us to this moment. It just sounds so ambitious and so interesting. And as you say, you've got firsthand experience as well as uh, a lot of close reading of uh, what's been going on. Do you retain any optimism for the West? Uh, are you hopeful that uh, that uh, democracy, the values of liberal democracy that you talk about, can find new um, new footing, new expression, or, or is this uh, all travelling in one direction? I think the West, um, if, if democracy is to emerge from this stronger, and let's remember, democracy, I think we can look broadly say, is in retreat right now. It's been hijacked from within. The soft guardrails of democracy have been damaged. The faith in institutions, in our courts, um, in, in our civil life, our social life, our uh, loss of faith in in, in, in the churches, we've seen in Australia, royal commissions into the church, into the um, uh, you know aged care industry, into the financial industry, um, people turning away from, from the mainstream parties. I think all of those things are a real challenge for democracy. Democracy may emerge from this stronger. It may emerge from this more accountable. Um, let's just take race as an example. I mean, there is no doubt that part of what we've seen in America is an indication of the failure of America to deal with the legacy of race, to deal with the legacy of slavery, the rise of the Black Lives Matter um, has has changed the country and the narrative, has seized that moment. Um, I think the rise of populism, Donald Trump um, tore the scab off that, if you like, and we know not for the not 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 for what were altruistic reasons, um, but what has been revealed. I don't think anyone after the Trump years can blithely ignore or wave away as deplorables those people who genuinely feel as if their country has deserted them. 
and they're locked in intergenerational unemployment and poverty and opioid epidemic and a suicide epidemic. And I don't think we can walk away and ignore those things now. Um, we could have before. Um, the, 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 the light that's being shone on that meritocracy and the grip they have on power is ultimately hopefully going to make them more accountable. So there is potential here for democracy and the West as it goes through this 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 moment to emerge out of this more representative, more accountable and stronger. But I think we also have to accept the fact that the idea of liberalism or Western philosophical ideas that gave birth to modernity, the, the, the belief that those things are universal, I think we have to accept that they are they are not and they are being rejected um, in great parts of the world and often violently rejected. We cannot just simply impose a one-size-fits-all universal liberalism to the world. The talk about a, a liberal global order that we hear so much about, well, it may have been global, but it was not always liberal. And the game was rigged in favour of what were white, powerful countries. And now you're seeing a real blowback against that. Um, we could emerge from this with the West in a stronger position, more accountable, more, re more representative. Um, but we could also emerge with a West that is damaged, polarised, uh, angry, feeding and turning on itself, with America retreating from the world um, as, a, as a damaged, broken society, and with the most dominant power in the world, the most stable country in the world, being an authoritarian regime in China. That's the crossroads that we're at right now. Yes, and I suppose the, the great vanity of liberal democracy to assume that it had reached this, you know, that it was the end point, the evolutionary end point of human organisation and that, uh, um, that, that, that nothing would challenge it, yet at the same time had, you know, clearly flawed assumptions built within it, such as the expectation that people who are the losers out of uh, restructuring, for example, or, or significant trends or economic share, however you want to describe it, that people who are losers out of that are going to keep the faith with those institutions, what, yeah. uh, what Donald Trump's come along and done, and, and populists all around the world have done it. They're speaking to a legitimate gripe. Whether you like populism or not is really not the point. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think there is always part of, I mean, liberalism has been an extraordinary thing in the world, you know, the ability to govern over diversity, the, the, the ideas of freedom that it gave birth to, um, extraordinary things, the rise of the individual, the fact that, you know, post-enlightenment, that we would not be shackled to faith or the ancient regimes, you know, we're not, we're not shackled um, to class or aristocracy. I mean, those things were extraordinary ideas that set fire to the world. But we also know that they were, they came in the cargo of colonisation and empire, that for vast sections of the world, and I'm included in this, um, meant that your world, your society was turned upside down, um, land stolen, genocide. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, the, the, the strength and success of the West and the philosophical ideas of the West carried within it the seeds of its own destruction. And even the, the strengths of liberalism taken to the nth degree, you end up in a, in a survival of the fittest, um, you know, a, a, an idea that, that the individual is all, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no society, there is just an economy, um, rampant individualism that leads to an alienation, the destruction of community, the destruction of those those civilising bonds between people, all of those things I think we've laid bare um, during the sort of tr triumph of, of neoliberalism. So, you know, it, it, there, there is so much to take in, uh, you know, at, at this moment um, and it's going to require real leadership. I, I, I make a point in the book and I, I sort of stumbled on this, you know, when, when you write a book, it reveals things to you in, in the writing. And I was writing about the, the fall of the Qing Empire and the seeds of modern China being sown. And the fall of the Qing was a was a real dark night of the soul for China. Um, China had been used to the idea that it was the, the Middle Kingdom, it was the centre of the universe, and great powers would beat their way to China to kowtow to the emperor. Um, 
and then, of course, with the collapse of, of the Qing Empire after the Opium Wars, tipping the country into revolution and chaos that didn't really end until 1949 at the end of the, of, of the, the communist revolution, um, and then, of course, continued after that with the Cultural Revolution. You know, that moment for China of deep introspection, that, that moment of existential angst and crisis, when it wondered about what China is, it looked to the West, what do we take from the West, but what do we reject of the West? I think it's analogous to where the West is now. Um, after endless war, financial crisis, um, rise of populism and tribalism and this anger that we've seen, I think the West is in a moment where it's lost its faith in itself in the way that China had lost faith in itself after the fall of the Qing. It took China a hell of a long time and it's still recovering from that, but is on the cusp of emerging back to where it was before the fall of the Qing Empire. And I think there is some analogy in that for where the West is now at this deep moment of, of introspection, crisis, wondering about what the future of the West is and what, what the world looks like in a world where the biggest economic power is not of the West. One of the things I did as a New Year's resolution was a pledge uh, to Angus Blackman and others that uh, I would not run these podcasts as long as I'd run them, uh, and let them run for you know fifty minutes or <laughs> sixty minutes or whatever, just because uh, you know there's a there's a limit to how much time people have. But uh, frankly, I could keep talking about this with you for so long; it's just so fascinating. That said, we're uh, certainly very close to time. I do want to come just to Australia Day very quickly. As I say, you've written yeah. a book about it. We've discussed it before, it seems to be this debate around Australia Day seems to be escalating. And at the same time, and someone made this observation to me in recent days, at some level, there seems to be a de-escalation of some of the jingoism around it. Uh, we, you know, I don't know whether this is COVID-related, perhaps it is, but it was put to me and it sort of rings true that um, there, there isn't quite the level of, you know, sort of just sort of blatant flag waving and partying and so forth that's, um, yeah. that was seen, say, five years ago. Nonetheless, we do have this, uh, this, this debate escalating about the date, about what it means. Uh, we've had interventions by the Prime Minister, his observations about it not being a flash day for people on the first fleet and, and, uh, you know, we've had Michael McCormack before that saying uh, all lives matter and, and, and uh, you know, these sorts of comments. There's, there's, there's a lot flying around. W I want to get your reflection on, on how this mm. Australia Day went and also whether you think, uh, as, as has also been put to me, that, um, that perhaps t uh, January 26 is not long for this world, that, that demographic changes will eventually just see it moved because there's another logic to it. Yeah, I look, I, when it comes to the date, I've always sort of had this view that moving the date would be easy and moving the date would, would be just too convenient. Moving the date without changing the country would be a pointless exercise to me. Um, of course, <laughs> the date is offensive. I mean, to celebrate a national day on a day that represents the day that the land was invaded and stolen from First Nations people. And, of course, the trigger for the ongoing trauma and suffering that, in, suffering that Indigenous people endure today, of course, it's an appalling date to celebrate a national day. But, Mark, it tells us everything about who we mm. are. The fact that it's celebrated on that day, the fact that the country still struggles to, to deal with that fundamental question that cannot say, of course, that's the wrong day to hold it, Moving the date for convenience sake without actually dealing with the fundamental questions, we don't have treaties, we don't have feasible forms of self-determination, we have appalling um, socioeconomic gaps still existing between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Um, we have a failure of leadership. You don't look to politicians to lead on this. I think one of the things around January 26th, is that the activism that Indigenous people and others have brought to this have changed the way that we see the date. And you're right, we're seeing less of that jingoism. Um, there is, there is, it's a more solemn day in many respects. We've incorporated January 25 as a, a – I was part of a vigil on January 25 of First Nations people who, who, who reflect on that moment before the world changed. Um, so we're bringing different things to January 26, that's making it more meaningful. We're challenging the whole idea of it. And if we do eventually move the date, I would hope that it's moved because 
we have changed because we have something else to mark about who we are rather than the convenience of just moving the date so that we don't have anger and activism and division. I think the anger and activism and division has been good for the country. We are better because of that anger and that activism. Um, so, so January 26, there is no easy answer to dealing with that. Um, what, what do we move the date to? What other date would would answer? You know, would uh, would would suffice? Would speak to all of us? Um, so, I so I think I think it's a journey that we're on. It's a journey without national leadership, but it's more interesting for that because it's a journey that we're seeing happening at a cultural and social level amongst ordinary Australians who are rubbing up against each other, often uncomfortably, um, and, and having hard conversations. And uh, and I think, you know, the day that the movement to change the date or even abolish the day entirely is doing its work. It's changing the country. And, you know, I, I look at this as someone who who is you know, proudly Wiradjuri, Gumroy, Darawal, but also, of course, has Irish ancestry and and the struggle of the nation to find itself is something I think that's deeply reflected in me. Um, the bones of all my ancestors resting in this country uneasily. But we can't do it for convenience sake and we can't just wish it away. We have to do it when it means something. We have to earn it and we haven't earned it. Yes, and you so eloquently put that in your book, We Remain a Country That Is Somehow Caught Between Ship and Shore in so many ways. Yeah, we are. Stan Grant, thanks so much for uh, coming on Democracy Sausage, the first one for 2021. Highly appropriate uh, for all of the uh, fantastic observations that you've been able to bring to us um, in terms of the international uh, expertise you have and, and of course, your uh, comments uh, in relation to Australia Day and Australian identity. I highly recommend... um, Australia Day as a book. I, I certainly look forward eagerly to your new book coming out. Uh, it sounds fascinating and it's been a great pleasure to have you on Democracy Sausage. So thanks again, Stan. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Anytime at all, Mark. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks very much. And that's your lot for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with a Democracy Sausage, uh, the second one for the year. Until then, bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.